My name's Steve. I'm one of the elders here. I happened at one point to help start the church, so I was like the, its minister for a while, but now I've taken away that responsibility because I don't like you all that much. But um, we did have a minister here recently, and he left us, which so many of these non-committal people do. Um, so I would appreciate, number one, your patience as we've been transitioning. We wanted to give you an update of where we are just transitioning to select a new lead minister here at Echo Church. So um, we are in the process. We have formed a uh, minister search committee. We actually have uh, members of that. Larry, Buddy, and myself as elders are on that committee, uh, as is Susan Israel, who's not here today because uh, she's in the back. I was going to say, because she's non-committed. No, she's more committed than all of us. Eric McDonald and Evan Kantz will also be serving on that committee. We, right now, we have actually a list of candidates, which is shocking to me, because I was like, how are we going to find people that might want to come and join us? And um, what we're trying to do working through this is making sure we work through a process. So the, a few things about that. Number one, uh, continue to tolerate us, you know, especially if you're newer visiting us. I know it's kind of weird to have a church in that transition, but like, we've always been transitioning, so we're really good at it. Uh, the second thing is, will you keep praying about uh, this search? Because uh, there's a lot going into us. Humans are involved, so it's never perfect. Um, and somebody, you know, it's funny, I've been for years as a minister, I was on the other side of getting told no, and I was like, oh, now I get to tell people no. So I'm kind of excited about that. I'm not really. But um, just, just be prayerful about all this thing. The Lord is good. We've got a great mission. And uh, continue to support Dylan and Kendra and what they're doing. We, uh, Larry and I have met with them as our staffers, and they're doing some amazing things. I told them in our meeting, and I say the same thing to you, is that I've been a part of this church for 12 years now. Um, there from the very beginning. I'm more excited about it today than I've ever been because we're doing some great things for the community. I'd like to touch on that actually here as we're going through our conversation. So um, making that transition, I want to do so, uh, you know, going straight for the comedy vein right here. I don't know if you're a Dave Chappelle fan and some people don't appreciate his comedy. Uh, sometimes he stretches it, but I think the funniest thing he ever did was on his show that aired years ago, and he did the profile of a man named Clayton Bigsby. And Clayton Bigsby was supposed to be the leading voice of white supremacy, and he played that person himself. Uh, now, the thing about Clayton was, and you can't see it well, is that uh, he's supposed to be blind. So he was, uh, you know, a blind uh, African-American child in an orphanage with a bunch of other blind white kids, and they said, we thought it would be easier just not to tell him he was actually black. And therefore, as he developed, you know, he just developed the racist tendencies of where he was in the South to the point that he was their leading voice. But he had never been seen until this point where he's like, I'm not afraid to, you know, to show my face, and he shows them. And it's funny, they do a thing where one guy's head literally blows up, and it's... Uh, it's humorous. I don't know if you've seen it. If you haven't, go Google it. There's just some stuff. I try not to show Chappelle, Chappelle clips. I wonder if that's ever been used in a sermon. Like some minister has had to have that, because I think it introduces this. Why is that concept even funny to us? Because we understand that um, prejudicial feelings are sometimes intertwined just with, with the visual Right? I mean, because we know that we share, you know, in all aspects of uh, our humanity with each other, but race is one that becomes difficult to transcend. So we have the events in, uh, of just yesterday. I don't know if you all have been under, uh, you know, that 24-hour 
Twitter bubble rock. Like if you, it's crazy now in today's society. Is like if you disconnect for one day, you miss everything. But the, the social media, the news, everything has been blowing up because in Charlottesville, West Virginia, there was a, um, a march of some white supremacists, uh, unfortunately ending up in one person uh, plowing through a crowd with an automobile where at least one person lost their life. So I've been looking in light of what I want to talk about today. You have incidents like this, and we as a church, that's something that we do as a hallmark really well. Maybe it's one of the reasons why we're not a large church, but I think it's good. We, we don't ignore what's happening in the world around us, and we try to have brutally transparent conversations about that. And I kind of want to lead us to that today because the issue that I have as a, a theologian, as somebody who has been in the church my entire life, who has taught ministers is the myopic views that we Christians sometimes bring to incidents like this. And that's tough because we think this is a cut and dry issue. I saw the Twitter feed of one seminary professor, and I don't know this person, so I'm not outing them, and if you really wanted to pursue who that was, you could find it. I never knew it, but I saw this online, which is something he tweeted yesterday. He said, I googled the top 50 evangelical leaders in the United States. I looked up their Twitter accounts. 40% have spoken against racism today. Not good. Which is interesting because I'm trying to determine how he came up with that metric. Like, you know, not even that, the 40%. I'm sure that he actually did maths here. But I'm just asking is, what leads him to determine that the reaction of the church in the United States can be best summarized in the response of 50 leaders' Twitter handles? But I think that's how we sometimes approach it, true, is we try to find this. And actually what's very interesting is I saw all over, like if your ch- church does not address white supremacism today, then, uh, you know, then you need to find a new church, which is, even that thought is hilarious to me. My friend, I have a good African-American pastor who actually wrote that. He goes, by the way, if you want to leave your church today, that's fine. But, it, you know, really, if you've been a part of that church and they've never addressed it before this day, then you probably shouldn't have been in that church in the first place. I like to, you know, again, get on our soapbox and be like, but we're the church that does that. Last year in July, um, when there were multiple shootings of African-American men, I actually called an audible and preached on this subject just a few weeks ago. Um, And if you missed this, I I was actually gone, but I was able to listen to my wife who preached on John chapter 4 about the issues of Samaritans in the scriptures and water and how that was a uh, people group in ancient times who were prejudiced against by God's people. We talk about this as a church, but here's the issue, is that I don't want to just get into the basics of this, just to say, well, this is bad, it's something we shouldn't do, but we as the people of God need to actually develop a concept of why. Why is white supremacism bad? I saw a lot of people just throwing the label, if you don't call it evil, then you are evil yourself, and you're just like, okay, that's, that's fine, but, but how do you construct this walk. So what I want us to look at this morning is the power of image, the power of what we see, how pervasive it can be in our lives. Can I show you an image here? This is from 1963. This right here is a picture of Walter Gadsden standing calm in Birmingham, Alabama during a civil march riot facing the onslaught of a vicious dog and a white police officer whose eyes are obscured. And by the way, this is something that, you know, I do, my life is like sales too, and you talk about this. You want to look somebody in the eye because you can read so much about them. So the the view of sunglasses obscures that. It makes them more menacing. This image 
was just taken haphazardly and was published in the New York Times the next day and has become so iconic in American history and into the history of civil rights that this was in Birmingham, Alabama, fashioned into a statue of Gadsden facing down the police officer. Now, what's interesting, I was listening to this podcast a few weeks ago of uh, Malcolm Gladwell, who, he, he, although he's Canadian, he uh, has an obsession with American civil rights. And in reviewing this picture, it's interesting because first, it wasn't attributed to Walter, the young man. They actually said it was another young person, but, you know, years later it came out that they misidentified him as actually Walter. They interviewed him years before his death as the anniversary of the civil rights uh, march in, in Alabama came to fruition because they wanted to hear about this amazing moment in time. And Gadsden was really put off by the entire thing altogether. He said, do you really know what happened on this day? Is that I had skipped school. Because I didn't want to go to school, I thought about going to a movie. And I went down the street, and the Civil Rights March was happening at the same time. And in order to escape the crowd, I actually went down the street, but the street was blocked off. And there was this officer with the dog. And he wasn't actually sicking the dog on me. I had gotten too close because I didn't see him in my peripheral. So the police officer is actually reaching out to protect me from the dog actually biting me. And it's interesting because they, uh, Gladwell also went and interviewed the, the, the wife of the police officer because he had passed away. And she was actually an immigrant from Europe that he had met in the Second World War. So I believe she was French or German. But they're talking about it and she's like, it just devastated him the rest of his life because he was just serving his job. It's like he was, he, it's not that he was a civil rights supporter, but he was not nearly as prejudiced as the picture put out. And the rest of his life, he ran away from this image when he was actually trying to protect the young man. Interestingly enough, Gadsden even came through. He goes, Gadsden himself to his dying day really didn't believe in civil rights at all, even though he was African-American. He thought they went too far. Yet it becomes such an iconic image that it was fashioned. And one of the things that Gadsden said is that if you look, the slight variance between the picture where the, in here the officer's arm is fully extended and Gadsden is leaning back with his hands in a posture of, uh, of just non-confrontationalism, whereas here Gadsden is actually leaning, the officer is kind of cradling him a little bit more. It was the image that became iconic even though the image didn't represent the truth. And one of the ways that this was then defended by even the person who made the sculpture is it doesn't matter what actually happened there. What, ma- what happens is this image that persists to the day. And I would actually ask then, does it? So when we look at this search then, to understand better race in the United States and understand why we can decry that white supremacism is evil, We actually have to mine into the scriptures. And again, this is something that's key that our society hasn't fully grappled with right now because so much of this, as much as we want to now push faith to the sideline and say that it's no longer relevant in our world, is that the relevance of the civil rights movement was nestled within the church. Now, I will grant you that prejudice in this country was also nestled within the scriptures very often. But what we see is that faith have its place, has its place, and scripturally, this takes us back to the very beginning of the Bible, actually to the flood, this point where God decided to call do-over on all of humanity, and when Noah and his family and the critters leave the ark, there is a promise that God gives, sealed in the rainbow, which says, whoever sheds human blood, by human shall their blood be shed for 
and, and, and that, that was basically because the murderous attitude that existed before the flood, this is why God called reset. But here's the key aspect to this in Genesis 9, 6. For in the image of God, God made mankind. Friends, the cornerstone to our belief in the equality of humanity is this, is that we are image bearers, that we have imprinted within us, humans, the DNA of God. And that's why even though I've seen Garrett cuddle his cat in the same posture that he cuddles his daughter, the lives of the two are different, true? And that is why he nestles her all closer. That's why he spent money on expensive child seats and, and plug, uh, you know, what do you call them? Plug stupper uppers, upper stupper, you know, those things. Child proofing everything. I don't think you probably cat through proof anything. It's just you put the berry up and you're just like, don't poop in my kitchen. Why is it so passionate about this? Because humans are different. And all of us bear the image of God. And this then becomes the basis for you and I to understand why it's so important that we treat each other well, right? Because in essence, as we treat each other, we are showing how we view the Lord God Almighty. Now, as we continue to mine through the scriptures, there's something that's fascinating about this too. After Genesis comes Exodus, and in Exodus, God has taken the, the family and made them in a, into a nation, a community, and as he tries to explain to them, this is the covenant that you will keep between me and you. This is what I expect out of you. The second commandment of the ten was these. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven. Now he proceeds to also tell you, even though heaven is off limits, actually everywhere is off limits. That idolatry is bad. And one of the reasons that God wants to do this is because it is a countercultural move because in this time, thousands of years before Jesus was born, 1400 actually, 1400 years, in this time, it is countercultural to every other major world religion that exists. Because they are completely fine with images within their God's name. We find one of these in the epic poem, the Enuma Elish, where the description of Marduk, uh, not Marmaduke, the dog, but Marduk, the chief of all the gods of Babylonian pantheon, we read about Marduk. His limbs were ingeniously made beyond comprehension, impossible to understand, too difficult to perceive. Four were his eyes, he had four eyes. Four were his ears, four ears. When his lips move, fire blazes forth as he speaks, fire comes out. His four ears were enormous and likewise the eyes. They perceived everything, highest among the gods. His form was outstanding. His limbs were very long. His height was outstanding. So it's this like massive Lord of the Rings figure with all of these exaggerated features which are supposed to represent who Marduk is. Why does he have big eyes and big ears? Because he's the Santa Claus of the ancient Near East. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He can hear you, he can perceive you, and he is massive. But here's the thing, is that as much as this sounds cartoonish, this known, by the way, as anthropomorphizing, right? where we put these characteristics that we have onto other things, whether it be animals or as high as deities. What this does then, it is inverts the order of creation. 
central to our belief is that God made everything. Not just us individually, but all things. And therefore, when what we do, what we do is when we take something within our world and try to ascribe that upward, we're actually breaking the, the, the entire creation process. Because my ability to understand God is so limited in comparison to how infinite he actually is. Are you seeing this? This is why it's sinful to make images of God. Because we have absolutely no concept because we're dealing within our present world, our present time. What's interesting was when you go read the Enuma Elish, the reason that there's that description is because they were trying to imagine something that they've never seen. If somebody tried to do that today and imagine and describe a God, I don't know what they, I don't know if it ends up being like Matrix-like, like they, they live in the system or something, but it becomes so broad. It, 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 we, we just contextualize that into what we know. And at every epoch in time, knowledge and context changes, and as a result, our view of God can change. So the Jews protected this so seriously that they were willing to give all. Just give you an example of that really quickly. Just years after Jesus died, a Roman emperor arose named Caligula. And if you know anything from your, uh, your Roman history back in school, Caligula was not the model emperor. Like most emperors that preceded, Caligula believed not just that he was in charge of everything, but that he was actually a god. See, some of the maniacal actions of some of the Caesars that ruled, you have to understand, their life was intertwined with, not only did they think that they were in charge, but they were so special that they could possibly even uh, forego death because of who they were. So Caligula has statues of himself, which are actually statues of Zeus, mind you, right? So he's making Zeus into his image. He has them deposited in every temple all across the Roman Empire, all across the Mediterranean world. You know, the only place that did not have one of these statues was the temple in Jerusalem. Because for hundreds of years, the Jews had had a good relationship, starting with Alexander the Great and those who had taken over, that their religion, their monotheism, which was known as paganism, paganism in the ancient world, the idea that they believed in one God that you couldn't see, it was protected but then Caligula says, why are they without excuse? I will have a statue of myself, Zeus, in the temple in Jerusalem. And again, if you know anything about the temple, there's nothing in the Holy of Holies, right? So this is what's interesting. We know about this through a couple historians. First, Josephus. There's Caligula. And by the way, this, again, when we talk about images, this was images of Caligula based over time. And remember what we said. Do you think he was actually this good looking? Like, I highly doubt it. But now through all history, the altering of an image is so ingrained in our mind that it's what we imagine him to be. That's a sidebar. Let me read Josephus and what happened here. Caligula bore a grudge for being so ignored by the Jews in this respect. So he ordered a large force to go to Jerusalem. And if the Jews were to receive him willingly, if they were able, if they said, you can have your statue in our temple, um, it all would go well. But if they treated him with arrogance, he was going to do this by mastering, mastering them in battle, which is euphemistic for kill them all, let gods sort them out, right? So what's interesting is the only reason that this didn't happen, and the Jews, by the way, prepared for battle. 
which if you know anything about Jewish history, there was a couple times that they were successful, most notably back in biblical times when they actually had God on their sides, but they had been conquered so many times. The size of their army would have been dwarfed by the Romans, but they put the armor on and they said, this is so important to who we are, we're willing to die for it. And fortunately, Tacitus, the um, historian, lets us know that it was stopped because Caligula was murdered and <laughs> everything got punted. So number one, Caligula was no longer eternal. <laughs> And there was no temple, but it was just a matter of decades until the Romans destroyed the temple because of their revolt. But I do say this, so seriously were the people of God toward making sure that God was not represented in image form that they were willing to die for it. They wanted to protect his image. Image, friends, is the source of idolatry. Image creates for us a world that might look enticing, but is not always a representation of what the reality is. I think I have a, do I have a picture of that? Yeah, the Dorito taco as an example. I, I am not, uh, you know what's funny, we had the conversation with my daughter, she has never had Taco Bell, like what a sheltered life we've led her this is why, honey, you're not excited about that. Because the picture on the left is what a Dorito taco should look like. The picture on the right is what is actually delivered unto you. Because this is the image that we're hoping for. And you know what's interesting about this? Do you ever get somebody, you know, we see, you've seen this done before, right? By the way, there are hamburger images, and I was like, that's just too traumatic for me pre-lunch. So I didn't want to show these images. You know, like, this is what a Big Mac really looks like. Like, it's just worse. I think, like, the taco is a better delivery system but I say this is, have you ever seen somebody then get that and say, I will not eat this because no longer, it no longer matches the image? No, why don't they do that? Because actually, the power of the image that they think it is overcomes their sensibilities and they just proceed as if it's the actual thing. Does that make sense? We sell ourselves on this, and we see this all the, all the time, right? One of the things that's happening societally, and this is something I feel excited about, I think it's happening now more to men than it ever did for women because there was always this beauty ideal that media put before us, right? And it was always like women had to succumb to some sort of ideal and that was it. What's great about that, I guess it's not great, but what's good about that, good, great, is that now it's happening to men too because there's all these images that are being projected as what you have to come up to. Why, why do we see that power? Is because, friends, it, it, the power of image is huge and that is why it becomes the source of idolatry. And what Jesus, or excuse me, what God wants to do in telling his people the power of image, he just says, look, I am, but don't bother to try to limit me by your images. Because if you do, you will fail miserably. You will not succeed. And why? Because he was there at the very beginning. He created us in his own image. In the image of God, he created us, male and female, he created them. God has his DNA on your entire existence. He knows you. We, however, have limitations just because our feeble minds cannot grasp all that God is. So if I were to make an image of God and say, this is who he is, the problem is, is that I'm limiting God and his infinite greatness. Interstellar was on TV last night. Anybody catch it this time? I did again. Kelly's like, fine, I'll do work. I'll leave the room. 
right? I got some interstellar people. If you've not watched it, you can repent. One of the reasons, and Kelly's like, it's just so sad. But one of the reasons that I love it is because it talks about just the vastness of space and who we are. You know, when it takes him two years just to get to Saturn, and then he comes back, oh, I got to, or maybe he dies, who knows, spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it, that's your, your, your penalty. But over the span, we look at time, it's just this idea is that, friends, the vastness of the universe is so absolutely mind-blowing that we can't even comprehend it. Cosmology, the creation, is one of the reasons that skeptics have such a hard time because as much as we can figure out, you know, aspects of the universe, there's so many ellipses that we just have to punt on the issue. If I am to take a statue and say, this is who God is, if I'm to take an image and give you a picture, if, if I'm going to assert to you that without a doubt, this is exactly how the God of the universe options, I, I don't factor in the infinite nature of the universe. Like, that makes sense. You've probably heard this before, right? He's so great, we can't imagine it. Have you also done the inverse about this? Do you realize that the finite nature of God would be limited by us putting it within an image? We only think of things in grandiose. That's why when, when in the Enuma Elish describing who Marduk is, it's this huge, massive creature. But do we also take a moment to consider the infinite space that has yet to be explored? Through the power of microscopic development, as much as we keep finding the smallest thing, scientists continually find the next smallest thing beyond that. And they will continue to do so throughout our entire life because there's an infinite aspect (laughs) to small. But we always think, no, you know, we we need to make make God massive. Sometimes, friends, God is so intimate that we don't even have the framework by which to understand who he is. When we make him into something, whether through an actual idol, whether through a picture, whether through my use of his name to decry something else that might not be his words, then I have made an idol. I've made him too great or too small. I've limited the Lord God Almighty. Theologically, if I stop there, I think things could be okay. But it's not really the thrust of the scriptures. Because the beautiful thing about this is that we didn't actually get an image of God we got the incarnation of God. See, this is what makes Jesus so powerful and persuasive within our faith. Is that Jesus, God incarnate, decides to come to earth and live among his creation. The Apostle Paul writes it here, and it's so poetic in Colossians chapter 1. One of my favorite texts. Jesus is the, the image, he's the image of who? The invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. What does that mean? Is that he wasn't a normal human being because he limited his greatness and his smallness and took on the form of a human being like you and I. In him everything was created, things in heaven, earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Is that what we saw in Jesus was the human representation of God on earth. This was an image, and God said, I'm cool with this one, right? 
And how did his creation treat him? They were jealous of him. They questioned his words. They nailed him to a tree and hung them there until he was dead. Can you start to see why God has an issue about image? Even when he sends the best image he can, we screw it up. Why is he so protective of this? Because he understands our inadequacies. I have to now then make that transition to where we are today and what has happened over the weekend. Because you need to ask yourself a very important question. So when you think of God, what image do you see? What image do you see? Friends, if anything, what history has shown us is that we are going to create God in our own image. And his foibles will match ours. Our prejudices, right, are imposed upon him. And we create a God in our own image. And this is why, and again, I don't know if I feel this is a safe place. I think we've created a safe place, but I'm always leery to say things publicly. So this is the point that I've actually pained over, so bear with me through this. Do you know why it really bothers me, the incidents in Charlottesville. And you know why the response of Christians saying, this is what we, we must decry, you know, you must condemn. Do you know why it really bothers me? Because so often, absent from that critique, is my culpability. I think our readiness to declare evil which again, what is evil? It's the antithesis of the image of God, right? I think our desire, and maybe not publicly, but at least, friends, under the surface, I think it's built from our desire to paint other things as evil so that I can feel justified by where I stand. It's easy for me to decry a white supremacist because they're disgusting, and in doing so, paint myself as the opposite of what that is. Now again, that does not mean that their actions are abhorrent. But it does mean that if I don't take myself to task for my prejudices, then I'm letting myself off the hook. So as much as that concerns me, the thing I can impact most is how I respond to that. As we've been trying to talk about as a church community, who we need to become. Um, one of the reasons that Kelly and I and Larry joined in, one of the reasons we started this thing is that we really felt a, 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 a heart for this neighborhood. Because at the time, back in 2005, this neighborhood was changing, but not nearly as quick. It was still predominantly poor, and it was just in desperate need. Now, we knew that there were people moving in, albeit slowly, but we said, what if we can be an anchor within that community to make a difference? So we moved in, and after years, we continued to get involved, and people saw us as a congregation that was, you know, intrinsic in the neighborhood. But then the growth of gentrification created a division of which there were no peacemakers. And we were almost forced for a time to have to choose sides. And I'll admit, as when I was the minister at the time, one of the things I said, I think we just need to call time out and wait for a season because almost anything that we could do could have been interpreted by taking one side versus the other. And 
Friends, that's a major calling, right? We, one of the reasons we're so passionate about what's happening in Charlottesville is where are the peacemakers in all of this and how do we react? And I think our fear at the time was is that we wouldn't be able to act appropriately. And some of the strains of that have borne itself out. Like one of the things, I talk to people who have been in the community or moving in the community, they're like, oh, well, you know, like I, I read an article in one of the business journals this last week, which, what's one of the neighborhoods on the rise? Walnut Hills. Need to get there. What's interesting is that the readership of the people who need to get there are usually social economically advanced and usually bear certain pigmentation, although I will say this, and this is one of the things about the race issue too, the race issue is so intertwined with social economics that we neglect to think sometimes how that bears out. So here's the thing is that Walnut Hills is becoming this community where you can find a good pizza and good barbecue and a weird Quentin Tarantino bar. Like, there's a lot of stuff happening, but it's residents, the long-time residents are struggling still. So here's one of the blessings that I've been able to perceive through this is that we're now at a crossroads to where the sides have been so drawn that the role of a peacekeeper could function well. And that's why I'm so proud, uh, and again, maybe this is kudos, but you know what, she don't get a lot for this gig, but that's why I'm so proud of what Kendra does for our church and this, this movement and those of you who lifted heavy things and tried to have that little festival on that hot day a few weeks ago because you were like, well, not that many people showed up. Friends, it wasn't even about what that, it was about peacemaking. It was about us being a church that can stand in the gap between these two and not get involved with the fight, but just love. So this is like, again, I'm kind of riffing a little, but there's application here. And the application then is that if you are really, really pained by what happened in Charlottesville, before angrily typing out your response online, maybe do this too. Go see Kendra and say, where's that meeting at Tuesday night? And show how you can get involved. And be a part of this church. Again, we're at this point of transition. Boy, there's, there's real estate to be taken. If you're interested and you're like, God's called me to do this, but I need somebody's permission, screw that. We're not about permission. We're about how are we going to change what's around us. I, uh, that response, I believe, keeps better with the grasp of the image of God. Because it's not decrying somebody before you who they aren't, but it's about me saying I'm going to serve and be the representation of Jesus Christ in an area that desperately needs it. So I've reversed this order, so I put the takeaway here, but I really want to, so this is horrible organization, but when you say things where you're like, are people going to get pissed, you just start to throw stuff out there. Let me, let me go here. This is interesting. By the way, this is not, I just found this one online, so this is not like my daughter's picture or any of your kids' pictures, but we recognize what this is, right? We didn't see this in the Museum d'Orsay when we were over in Paris in the spring, this is actually just somebody's kid drew a picture, they took a picture, and they posted it on the internet, right? Like, this is it. And what's funny is that even though that happens, you guys, like, you know this picture, right? This is a representation of what happens all the time, which on the first day of first grade, or, you know, hopefully it's first grade and not, like, seventh, but the teacher just says, let's, let's get a picture of you. So they draw a perception of what their family is, right? It's this image. And it's funny is that, it, the best part was me was clicking this and being able to look at you. None of you were just like, you know, like nobody was angry at this image. It doesn't evoke that, right? It can't because you smile at it because maybe your kid has made this picture, your grandchild. 
Or maybe this type of picture is something that you made that hung on your refrigerator for, for all those years, and it's still there because you go back home and your parents have it on there, right? You understand this picture, which is a, it, it's, it's a childlike representation of life drawn by a human being that does not understand scope and scale, right? This is Marduk level right here because if their legs are that tall, that's just freakish. Torsos abound. Lack of ears. Construction issues that we have on the house. Like the stairway leading to the top of the door. I would love just the size of the sun in relation. A sun that big would melt us all. I wonder what the real estate costs here. This is the thing I'm getting to. This makes us smile, right? There's something innocent about this. And friends, we lean into innocence. True? Because there's something beautiful. It's why you like Disney movies. We like just this, this world that can explain incredibly easy. But what lacks here is the complexity of this picture, right? Including the size of the sun and what it would do including the construction of this home. There, there's a lot that's not pictured in here, right? This picture is not an actual representation. What are those marbles in the sky, like Skittles? I just noticed that. There's so much to this picture that's lacking. We like it because it harkens us back to something, but friends, that's not truth, is it? It does not address the complexities of the world. And so many times, friends, this is why this is important. Our image of God is similar to this. And we say, well, God is just this and that's it. Our pictures of God are, are, are just a, a simple kid's drawing. And you're like, and God loves that because he sees us like childlike children. Okay, you can't have it both ways, right? If you want to embrace the complexities of the world, you have to embrace the complexities in the image of God. And the biggest issue is that's something that we don't do. So stick with me here. That does not mean that we don't confront and address evil when it comes to us. True? That's not how we respond. And by the way, for those of us on the other side who are like, why aren't certain people doing it? Friends, there has been, you, you are subject to the political grandstanding that has made this even more egregious. Because... We are using this incident of some crazies to make carpet, blanketed accusations against people who might not feel this. So we are all subject to that, right? Some of you tweeted because you voted for the other guy. Some of you tweeted because you didn't vote for the lady, or you didn't tweet because you didn't vote for the lady, right? Friends, we're in this basket that's intertwined that has just put us within. This is evil, that's not. You should vote and think exactly like I do. It's just not that simple. It's not this simple. Now, stay with me. Stay with me, because here's the beauty. We address it, but before addressing it externally, address it internally. Have you really addressed it internally? What are the prejudices that you're bringing to the table? How are you disparaging those in the image of God? See, and the reason that we could go through this for hours, because there's so many nuanced aspects of theology that comes to this, because they're like, no, we address evil. They're evil. We have to tell... No. Friends, it's so nuanced. It comes down to this idea that our God deals with our stupidity 
and our misinformed beliefs and our horrific actions for no other reason than his love is inescapable. And that's why he came to earth. And if it was just by virtue of how we treated him here, he would have called the deal off and yet he went through with it. I can't make sense of it all myself. I can't make sense for us today. And you know why that is? And this is the point where humility comes in the conversation. The Apostle Paul, in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, tells us that now we just see a reflection. We only grasp images of God right now, true? We're only seeing, you know, things that are just like almost a funhouse mirror. Sometimes they're smaller, sometimes they're elongated. We're only seeing a certain picture. But one day will grasp the full image of God. And as much as I look forward to that, that's flipping frightening. Because I have a premonition that when I do, I'm going to see how horrible I was in the process. I don't know if this makes sense to you. Maybe it brings more questions than answers. Can I tell you the hallmark of then our faith is? Is that it all ends up at the truest image of God, the image of the invisible God. It ends up at the cross. It ends up at Christ. And that's how we conclude our worship today as we do all the time. You know why we commune every week? Why we pass around the trays and have you eat bread and some grape juice to remember a horrific event? You know, we do all of that because it it brings us back to the cross. I don't deserve the grace given to me, and yet the God of the universe loves me enough to die for me. So sometimes images are lacking, but experiences stick with us. So I don't know what my prayer for you during this time of communion. The first thing that I would ask is that as you eat the bread and the cup, remember Christ and the cross. That's one. I think the second thing is, is that ask yourself what your culpability to the situation is. And you might, I, I got to say this, and if you're like, well, I haven't done anything, then friends, we need to talk later too. I think the third thing is just to ask yourself what it truly means to be an image bearer and to love even those who represent the most horrific images of humanity. Because we bring about a scale, but friends, uh, we're there. Through our actions, we hung them on a tree. And then as his arms were stretched out on that cross, He removes them to hug us, to cover us in his love. makes no sense to me. But I try to remind myself that every day that I live, he's got to become greater. And even if I don't understand the who, what, when, where, why, I have to become less. I'm going to pray. We'll commune. Heavenly Father, we live in the most amazing time in human history. And I say that just by virtue of our access to information, that something can happen uh, zip codes away in another state, and yet images of that can resonate throughout the entire world as if it's happening right down the street. And with that uh, information, Father, we know that that information has powerful sensibilities. First, I would ask that you allow us to be able to handle that well so that that doesn't lead us to hate. Because, Father, the same hate that dwells in some of these people 
towards people who don't look like, look like them, we, we can harbor that exact same hate. And even though it's so difficult, you teach us to love one another as you have loved us. I'll spend the rest of my life trying to figure that one out, Lord. But during this time, I ask that you help us to go there. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you for his role in this world. Thank you for the image of a Lord who loved us so much that he died for our very eternity. We're not worthy, but he makes us so. And that's why we praise as we commune in Christ's name. Amen.